Let's open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read the entire text this morning, all of chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, 
and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Throughout most of my life, I have read this chapter as if it were a description of something that is only going to be experienced in the future. I think that this is a description of something that has already commenced and that will be consummated in the future. I don't remember much from my days of taking geometry. I wish I'd paid more attention because I think I would be very fascinated with uh, geometry and mathematics, uh, but I didn't pay attention when I should have paid attention, and so it all just uh, blurred into uh, mostly meaningless time for me. But I do remember some of the symbols that we used in geometry. If you wanted to indicate that a line extended uh, infinitely in both directions, then you drew a straight line and you put an arrow on both ends. That meant that it, it extended forever in both directions. If you wanted to represent uh, something that had a beginning and an end, then uh, you made something like little, little brackets, and you drew a line between the two brackets, and then there was an arrow that touched up against each one of the brackets. That meant that it, had a, it has a beginning, this line has a beginning, and it has an end. And then if you wanted to represent something like a radius, something that extends infinitely but only in one direction, then you had a terminus beginning, you had a place that you began, and then at the end of the line you made a little, you made a little arrow. So if we were going to use those symbols to represent God, then we would represent, we would use the symbol that has a line with an arrow on both ends. He is infinite. You cannot find his beginning, you cannot find his ending. He's infinite. If we wanted to represent the covenant, the old covenant made with Israel, then it would have a beginning and it would have an end. And uh, so the arrows would stop at the terminus points at each end of the line. If we're going to represent what we have in this chapter, which I believe is the description of the kingdom of God, then there would be a beginning point, I think during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, some people would say at Pentecost, but very, very uh, around in, the, in Jesus' ministry, we're at Pentecost, there would be a beginning point, and then we would represent it as a line with an arrow on the end. So that some of the things that are described in this chapter commenced with the ministry of Jesus. And we would expect them to if, we're ta- if this is about the kingdom of God. What most people throughout the world would call the church, but I think it's less confusing to say that this is the kingdom of God, which consists exclusively of converted persons. Other people might say that this is a description of spiritual Israel. I conceive that all three terms are essentially the same, the church, 
the kingdom of God, spiritual Israel, but I'm going to use the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said, when he began his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's about to begin. And then during his ministry, he said, do not look for the kingdom of God and say, here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is among you. And if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come. And so I believe that the kingdom of God came during Jesus' ministry. I think that there was some overlap between the old covenant, which continued to be in effect until 70 A.D., and the new covenant, or the kingdom of God, which began about 35 or 40 years before that. Then also remember that when Jesus describes the kingdom of God, he says, some of you who are living here, some of you who are standing here, will not die before you see the kingdom of God coming in its power. And so there's just virtually no doubt that during the ministry of Jesus or shortly thereafter with the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that the kingdom of God commenced. And uh, then the Bible describes that the old covenant is uh, perishing, it's, it, it was abolished and is passing away. The very last verse in Hebrews chapter 8 explains it that way. Now, as I said, most of us, certainly I, have read this chapter for most of my life assuming that it's describing something that is going to happen at the end of the world when Jesus comes back, that that is when he is going to create the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Let me uh, direct your attention to a couple of verses of Scripture that I think will help you to see that this is describing something that has commenced and is continuing and will go on until there is the marriage of the Lamb. What you have now is something like that that depiction of a radius that has a beginning point and then has an arrow on the end, but I want you to imagine that there is a bride walking on that line so that there is a a bride that is walking down the aisle, and that's the way that I conceive this chapter describing uh, the new covenant, describing what began in Jesus' time is going to be consummated when Jesus comes back. But a lot of what is here is true of the people of God right now. There are a few things that I think are not true of the people of God right now. So if it says that death will be no more, and it's talking about literal physical death, then of course that hasn't happened yet. But there's a spiritual sense in which death no longer has any power over the people who are in the kingdom of God. Still, I think that there are some things that say, well, that will be fulfilled in the future. And then there's some other things that are described here that it seems like, well, that, that's not going to be true of the eternal state of things, uh, so that uh, the, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It seems like there are people who are still coming into the kingdom of God, and so I, I think that that's happening right now. So a couple of verses of Scripture that I want you to keep in mind. One is John chapter 17 and verse 3. It's quite short. And so you may get it implanted in your mind if you just hear me quote it. Jesus is praying, and uh, this is what is commonly called his high priestly prayer. And he says, he's praying to the Father, and he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you are unfamiliar with that passage of Scripture and I were to have asked you what is eternal life, then you might say, or I might say, well, it's, it's living forever. That's what eternal life is. And uh, what, are the, what are the circumstances of this eternal life? And then we might have cited some of the things that I just read in chapter 21 and chapter 22. Well, it's going to be lived forever in a, in a large city that is built four square. It's about 1,500 miles, a, a, a cube that is 1,500 miles on each side and on the top. Uh, there will be streets of gold. There's not going to be any more death. We would be very likely to have answered something like that. When Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, is that something that commences in time? And the answer is yes. And so, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom whom he has sent, then even now you are in possession of eternal life. You already have... Right now, the best part of heaven. You don't have as much of it as you will one day have. But you already have the best part of heaven. And that's knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. Now there's another verse of scripture, and I don't have this one memorized, and so I need to turn to it myself, and you might as well too. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. And here's what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creation And then I'm going to argue that you are part of the new creation and that that participation in the new creation is what is being described in in Revelation chapter 21. When you become part of the kingdom of God, then you are part of the new creation. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 is just one of several texts, you know, where I might have pointed you to descriptions of the new birth as being a new creation. And, uh, but it's, it's a very powerful one. And so keep those two verses of Scripture in mind. The first one was, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the second one is, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation, the old has passed and the new has come. Now, throughout our pilgrimage as Christians, the Lord has been teaching us to value some things very highly and to place a small value on other things. So we are to place a high value on uh, spiritual treasures. We're to place a high value on knowing God. We're to place a high value on having our sins forgiven. We're to place a high value on the fellowship with other believers. We're to place a high value on uh, on God's law and God's truth. So. We're being taught to highly value those things. 
On the other hand, we're being taught to place a low value on uh, things that have a temporary existence, things like wealth. So Jesus tells us, be careful not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. There's nothing sinful about being wealthy. Thank God that there are wealthy people who uh, use their use their wealth for the sake of the kingdom of God. And let's just be honest, if most of the world were looking into this room today, they would say everybody in this room is wealthy. And by, by world standards, by historic standards, we are. If you've got enough food that you can eat any time that you want to, then by, by historic standards, you are a wealthy person. But we usually don't think of ourselves as being wealthy There's nothing inherently sinful about gold and silver and pearls and jewels. But the Lord is teaching us that those things, while they are beautiful and while they are useful, are not the most precious treasures. And so it would seem unusual if heaven is set before us as a mountain full of the things that we have been taught to value very little. So in this chapter that I just read, there are, there are jewels. There are 12 jewels that are mentioned. The streets are said to be of gold, the walls of jasper, the gates of a single pearl. Is that somehow uh, supposed to awaken a longing in us, a longing to live there forever? Well, to see such a building would, would satisfy our curiosity for a while, and it would be amazing to see something like that. But uh, is that what is supposed to satisfy us forever, to be able to walk on streets that are gold? Oh, no, that's, that's just contrary to what the Lord has been teaching us all of our Christian pilgrimage, that these things that we place little value on, that now suddenly we're saying, that's why I want to go there. That's why I think the author of this song is misguided. I, I've chosen one of many songs, but... You're familiar with this. I'm familiar with this. I've sung it enough that I have it memorized. It's a very catchy tune. But I think that it's misguided. Here's the way it goes. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below. A little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I could have quoted that a little more obnoxiously. I'm satisfied in this world below with just a little silver and a little gold. But in that mansion where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. Bring it here right now. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we shall never more wander but walk on streets of purest gold. Now I like that song so... Using it for an illustration uh, offends me, and I'm more offended than you are. So if that's your, if that's your favorite song, then let's just have a, let's just have a pout together. So <clears throat> more, more better is a song that you may never have heard. I'll sing it for you. It's real short. Acres of diamonds, mountains of gold. Rivers of silver, jewels untold. All these together 
couldn't buy you or me peace when we're sleeping or a conscience that's free a heart that's contented a satisfied mind these are the treasures money can't buy if you have jesus there's more wealth in your soul than acres of diamonds mountains of gold that's better that's better acres of diamonds and mountains of gold it really can't buy you the things that are most precious and if you have Jesus, there's more wealth in your soul than acres of diamonds or mountains of gold. Some of you will know the lyrics to I'd Rather Have Jesus. And uh, the, the, the author goes through the same thing. Still more better is that stanza that I've uh, quoted to you occasionally. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Not at the king of glory but on my king of grace. I didn't get that right. So the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Not at the, I'm missing a word here, realms of glory, but on my king of grace. The point is, what he says next, uh, the lamb is all the beauty of Emmanuel's land. That's, that's the glorious thing about heaven. And if that be true, then that is a test that we can lay ourselves alongside of today. Do we have longings for the, to live in a place where the main attraction is that we get to be with God, where the main attraction is that we get to see His face, where the main attraction is where we get to be with God's people, not just with Mamma and Papa. Not just with mom and dad. I, my mama and papa and my mom and dad are in heaven like, like many of yours are too. And I'm looking forward to seeing them. But that mustn't be the main thing that draws us to heaven. That's like, that's like the mustard and pickle on the hamburger. It's not the main thing. The main thing is that we get to be with God. And I think that all of these beautiful descriptions are very poetic ways of saying... It is going to be better than you can possibly imagine. And so we saw earlier, two or three weeks ago, that there is an invitation that is issued to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. I can see it in my open Bible at chapter 19 and verse 9, where the angel said, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You get the invitation you are really blessed if you get the invitation. But now chapter 21 takes us closer to the wedding itself. I don't think that we see the wedding itself in chapter 21. I think that what we see is something like the rehearsal dinner and then a description of where the newlyweds will live. Let's first of all look at what I'm calling the rehearsal dinner beginning in chapter 21 and verse 1. And at the rehearsal dinner, you know, sometimes there will be a, uh, in today's 
rehearsal dinners, there'll be some kind of a video playing or maybe a series of pictures that shows the bride and groom when they were little boys and little, little, when he was a little boy, when she was a little girl. And then it will show them as they grow up, and then it will show pictures of them on their first date and so on. Well, there's something like this sort of video that's playing at this rehearsal dinner, but it's not a video of the past. It is a video of the future. It's the sort of things that are going to happen uh, when the bride and the groom uh, get together. And so he sees, in verse 1, the new, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, I think that this is the sort of language that the Bible uses, like in 1 Corinthians 5.17, uh, like the Bible uses in, in, in the sermon uh, on the Olivet Discourse, that the destruction of the old covenant is described as the destruction of an old world. The, uh, the sun becomes black like sackcloth. The moon become, full moon becomes like blood. There's an earthquake. There's heavy hail. This is a way of saying there is, an, there is a world that is being destroyed. And that world is the world of the old covenant. And there is now a new world that has shimmered into view. And that's the new heaven and the new earth of the new covenant. What does it mean that the sea was no more? The sea is a in the Bible, the sea often represents the turmoil of the nations. The sea is not a safe place. Israelites were not famous for being seafaring people. They were people who, who pretty much stayed away from the sea as far as the Bible is concerned. It's a dangerous place. It is the place of the nations. And so there's not going to be in the kingdom of God, there's not going to be this turmoil that often came from the seas to attack, the, to attack God's people. In fact, as we'll see as this goes on, in the kingdom of God, people who once were antagonistic against one another, people who at one time were enemies against one another, are now reconciled in the kingdom of God. I think this is what it means in the Old Testament when it says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like an ox. I think that that is a metaphorical way of saying that in the kingdom of God, people who formerly were vicious against one another are now reconciled and at peace. And I think that's the, the idea here when it says that the sea was no more. And the city, so we just get a glimpse of the bride here. We see the, whole, <clears throat> the holy city. <clears throat> now by this time, the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem was anything but holy, but now... Here comes a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this is the source of the bride. The bride comes from God out of heaven. She is a product of the God of heaven's grace and of his sovereign work. And so the bride comes down out of heaven from God. She, is, she consists of people who have been born again on earth, but it is the doing of God from heaven. And then I hear a loud voice, but look, she's, she's dressed and she's ready. She's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so she is clothed in the sort of things that her husband will find attractive. And uh, the Apostle Paul says to one of the churches, I, I labor earnestly because I want to present you as a pure and chaste bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, when it's talking <clears throat> the responsibilities of husbands and wives, Paul, Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
as, as, the, as uh, Christ died for the church, so the husband needs to live sacrificially for his wife. As the, as the church submits to Christ, so the wife needs to submit herself to her husband. But all of this is just a picture of the relationship that exists between Jesus and his bride. And so she's dressed beautifully in the sort of things that Jesus would value. And uh, so she has on, <clears throat> you know, she, she is wearing a, a pure white dress made of fine linen, which is the, the righteous deeds of the saints. You can see that in chapter 19 and verse 8. She's dressed in fine linen. And then our imagination might go wild here and say that she is wearing a veil of modesty that makes her so beautiful in the eyes of him who was meek and lowly in heart. And then we might say that she's wearing a, a necklace that is the, taking the advice of the, the wisdom of the scriptures. Like the book of Proverbs says, wear the advice of your father and mother on your neck like a necklace. And then we might delve into the, the, the Song of Solomon and see some of the descriptions of the beautiful bride there. And say all of this is the way that the bride is adorned. But she is exactly what the Lord Jesus finds attractive. She is adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Now, when I was memorizing this months ago, then I imagined, and I think I was right in my imagination, that this is the bridegroom exclaiming with joyful admiration at the appearance of his bride. And so he who is seated on the throne... Uh, I think that's Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so there comes a loud voice from the throne. And look at what he finds so admirable about this arrangement. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's the main thing. That's the great thing. That's the amazing, wonderful thing is that God and his redeemed people are going to dwell together in peace and harmony and love forever. Like a, a bride and a bridegroom who are perfectly matched and suited for one another. Now this bridegroom is a bridegroom who has great skill as a counselor and he has great skill as a fixer. Look at what he's able to do in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Now, I think that this is one of the descriptions of what is going on here that will ultimately be fulfilled perfectly in eternity future. But I think even now, the Lord wipes away tears from our eyes. Not every tear, but he wipes away tears from our eyes. Even now, the Lord has delivered us from the dominion of death and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Even now, the words of Jesus apply to us as he spoke to Martha outside the tomb of Lazarus. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so even now, we are among those who have been delivered by the work of Christ from our subjection to lifelong slavery owing to our fear of death, as it says in the book of Hebrews. And so even now, there is a sense in which death is no more for the people of God. But I think that there will be a time that's described in the Bible when the last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself, and that physical death itself will be done away with. But the process has already commenced. 
And when that is the case, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So our bridegroom is someone who is a wonderful counselor, but he's also a wonderful fixer. He is able to fix things that no one else can. As it says in verse 5, behold, I'm making all things new. Now, this bridegroom is also someone who is trustworthy. He's not afraid to put down in writing the things that he's saying because he tells John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's the kind of person who is able to do all that he promises because, as he says in verse 6, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this bridegroom is someone who is very generous. He says that to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And it's thirsty people who have made up the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm going to continue to satisfy you with the water of life. Even as he said a couple of times during his earthly ministry, I am the water of life. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, he says. And then as he says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we see that happening even now that the Lord is satisfying the thirsty with his, with his all-satisfying water. And he is someone who very generously enters into close relationship with those who are among his people. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But this bridegroom, while he is very generous, is also someone who is discerning. And so we read in verse 8 that there are some who will not be allowed to be part of his bride. Cowardly, that is those people who uh, under pressure for whatever reason decide that they will not speak up boldly for Christ, will not own themselves to be Christians. The cowardly, the faithless the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't know that all of us would have put liars into such a category, but lying is a grievous sin because essentially lying is refusing to align yourself with the God of truth. Lying is saying, I am going to align myself with my own ideas, which require me to deceive people in order to accomplish my goals. But all of these people, they're not going to be part of the bride. They're not going to be in the city, which is what we come to next. So beginning in verse 9, we have a description of what I'll call the newlyweds new home. But you've got to remember that in describing the city, this is also a description of the bride. Yes, we don't get a description in this chapter of what the bride is wearing. Almost as soon as she appears, she starts being described as a very beautiful city. Now, why is that? Well, let's read verse 9 and 10, and then I'll I'll tell you why I think that is. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Well, just a few chapters early, we had one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls say, come, I will show you the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. 
So now it's appropriate. I've shown you the prostitute, which I think is old Jerusalem. Now I'm going to show you the bride, which is the new Jerusalem. The wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Oh, when he showed us the prostitute, he, he was carried away into the wilderness. But now he's carried away into a great high mountain. I think our ideas of the clean, pristine uh, mountain air are appropriate for us to think here. It's not, it's not some kind of a wilderness, dry and desolate. Instead, it is, a, it is a high mountain full of life. And he shows us the holy city. So that's the bride. The bride is a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, there are a number of reasons that I think that the bride is now described as a, as a city. And uh, one reason, I think, is to show that there are a lot of people who live in the city. So it's not going to be just a few people in heaven. Uh, heaven is a city, and as we'll see, it's described as a very large city. The kingdom of God, even now, contains, we trust, millions upon millions of people who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, who are participating in this new creation that is being described here that will be fulfilled sometime in the future. Uh, So it is a city, but it is the holy city, Jerusalem. All throughout this book, we've been reading about the destruction of the unholy city of Jerusalem, but here is the bride, and she is described as a holy city, and once again coming down out of heaven from God. She's very beautiful. In fact, she has the glory of God, which in numerous places throughout the Scripture is set before us as the great goal toward which we all ought to be striving, that we might see the glory of God, that we might participate in the glory of God. Well, those in the kingdom of God have the glory of God, and then there are these particular descriptions. Radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Uh, Because it's described as clear as crystal, some people think that this is a a description of a diamond. Uh, Jasper has color to it, and so I'm not exactly sure what is going on here. I think that the general thing is it's just very, very beautiful. It also is very safe. Chapter 12 describes, I mean verse 12 describes a great high wall. And as we will see, this is an enormous, it's enormous wall. Uh, It's 144 cubits. So a cubit is the measurement from the tip of your elbow to the uh, tip of your finger. That's roughly 18 inches on the the average sized man. And so uh, a wall that is 144 cubits is a very tall wall. It's... uh, 144 feet plus whatever half of 144 is, so plus 70-something. And uh, so a very high wall, and, uh, but in this wall, so it's a very safe place, but in this wall there are 12 gates. So if it's such a safe place, and these gates are never shut. But at the gates there are 12 angels, which, keeping with my policy from the beginning, I don't think necessarily refers to heavenly beings. It could be messengers. Since we started out this book with a description of seven churches and that had seven angels, and those seven angels were pastors, I think this could be a representative of how pastors are in some way uh, supervising who comes in and out of the gates of the church or the gates of the, the visible kingdom of God on earth. 
But anyway, there's this great high wall, and so we're going to be safe. We are safely protected now in the kingdom of God, and we will be forever and ever. But now the gates are open. This is one of the descriptions of the kingdom of God that I think is appropriate for us in this age, but not necessarily in the age that is to come. Because in the age to come, we don't read of there being uh, people who are able to go from hell or from purgatory into the gates of the city. And so I think this is a, 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 an element of the description of the, the holy city, New Jerusalem, which is relevant for us right now. Now the gates are open. And they're towards the, the four corners of the earth. So there are three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And so the, the, very, the, the invitation has gone out. Anyone from any nation in any direction may now come into the kingdom of God. And uh, this is a very historic city. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I didn't read verse 12 again right now, but on those 12 gates are the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. I think this is a, a way of saying that there are people from the nation of Israel that are going to come into the kingdom of God, but they've got to enter through the gate of Jesus Christ. And uh, the 12 apostles represent the new covenant. The, the 12 tribes of Israel represent the old covenant. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the, uh, it, it's a very historic city. It's a very historic kingdom that uh, reaches back uh, to the 12 apostles and then even further, further back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, we read about an angel uh, or someone, I can't remember who it was, measuring a new, a new temple. And um, in my opinion, it's, it's like the three most boring chapters in the whole Bible, just all of, these, all of these measurements of the temple and what's going to be there. Some of the things that are measured there are things like the altar. And, uh, and so people who have a different view towards the book of Revelation than I do will say, well, that's a description of the temple that is going to be in the new Jerusalem during the millennium. And there will be animal sacrifices that are offered on the altar because, after all, in Ezekiel's temple, there is an altar that is measured. And so there will be animal sacrifices offered there again. And uh, when I was a young man, uh, that, that dispensational view of things was what, uh, what I heard all the time. And it puzzled me, and I asked my dad about it, who at that time was a dispensationalist. And, uh, I mean, he's died now and gone to heaven, so he's no longer a dispensationalist. But uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he was in those days. Actually, actually he, when he was an older man, he changed his eschatology. I went, went to visit mom and dad when they were old. Uh, well, not so old, since I'm almost that old now. But uh, I went to visit them, and my mom said, well, your dad's changed his eschatology. And I said, oh, well, tell me about it. He said, yeah, I've become a historic premillennialist. So uh, he, uh, he changed from being a dispensationalist to a historic premillennialist when he was an older man in his 70s. And I'm kind of proud of him for that, that he was still as an older man, not so set in his ways that he couldn't 
uh, consider new evidence that would cause him to change a view that he had espoused his entire life. But anyway, my, my, both my dad and I were dispensationalists when I asked him, how can they be offering animal sacrifices in the millennium? And my dad said, well, I, I'm not sure. I, I just think that maybe it's memorial sacrifices, much in the way that we observe the Lord's Supper, as a memorial supper to commemorate the past. Uh, I was uncomfortable with it then. Uh, I see why, now that I have grown older, I just think that uh, the book of Hebrews makes it ever so clear that animal sacrifices commemorate a, a procedure that could never take away sins and that it would be silly to, in, uh, at any time in the future, to reinstitute uh, the sacrificing of animals. It would be just insulting to Jesus Christ who offered himself once for all to take away sins for all time. But anyway, in, in Ezekiel, we have this measuring of the temple. And so here again, we have a measuring of the temple. And I think that it, this is a metaphorical, poetic description of the kingdom of God that is true even now, but will ultimately be fulfilled in the future. However, let me say that I do not look for there in the future to be a city with, with these dimensions. It might be bigger. It might be, it might be smaller. I just think that this is a, is a representational uh, description of things. But let's look at it. In verse 16, it is, uh, we see that it's 12,000 stadia. Uh, that means it's about 1,500 miles. So uh, if, if one corner of it were at Baltimore, Maryland, another corner of it would be at about Kansas City, and uh, so it's, it, it's really big, 1,500 miles. And it's not just 1,500 miles wide and long. It's also 1,500 miles high. I, I don't have any trouble believing that God can, could construct such a city as that. I just don't think that the point is that uh, it, it is uh, enormous and liter literally that size. Uh, I think that the point, I think that the number 12,000 is three times four, times 10, times 10, times 10, um, which 3 is the number of the Trinity, 4 is the number of creation, and 10 times 10 times 10, the number of perfection. So 12 times uh, 1,000 equals 12,000. I think that the point is, this is a perfect place to live. I also think that it is meant to imitate the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, which was a perfect cube. And uh, the Holy of Holies in the temple of Solomon, which also was a perfect cube. This is a place where the whole city is the Holy of Holies. It is the place where the glory of God dwells. It is uh, very impressive. It's very beautiful. There are 12, uh, 12 gemstones that are mentioned here. And I've, I've looked these up on the internet numerous times. You can even order little cards that will have little glass representations of all, all 12 of these stones. There's some disagreement about what color some of them are, so I'm not exactly sure what some of these are. I don't think you have to know in order to get the significance of it. I think the significance of it is that, that God manifests his glories in this city in the way that jewels manifest the glory of light on earth. And so... Uh, God's, God's attributes are seen to be so beautiful and they form the foundation of the wall of the city. 
There's no temple in the city, verse 22. No temple. So I'm not sure how those who think that Ezekiel's temple is a description of what's going to take place in the millennium, and this is a description of the millennium. But anyway, there's no temple in the city. Why? The whole city is what the temple used to be. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need for the sun or the moon. Why? God is the one who gives it light. The glory of the Lamb is the one who who gives it light. Its gates will never be shut by day. Oh, doesn't that make it dangerous at night? No, there will be no night there. And so I think that there is a spiritual fulfillment of this now, that uh, the the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are in the kingdom of God, are illumined by the light of God, by the light of the Lamb of God, and uh, that uh, it is a continuous illumination that comes from the Lord. And uh, now I think that verses 26 and 27 are being spiritually fulfilled, that the glory and the honor of the nations, elect from all of the world, are coming into the kingdom of God and that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I think that the description of the kingdom of God continues into chapter 22, but I'll save that for next week. Jim Bob, come lead us in in the concluding hymn.